Hey buddy, I hoid the droughts moving in, muscling in on your turf. To make matters worse, the man keeps telling you to limit your spigot. That drought is bad news, no fooling. But me and my boys can help. The water boys, on the water zone, Thursday nights at six. We'll help you protect your turf and save water. And hey, don't worry about it. Consider it a gift. Yeah, Louie, you heard the boss. We gotta listen in at 6 p.m. on Thursday nights. Okay, Vinny, you got it. The water zone, Thursday nights at 6 p.m. I'll tell our lawn it's now protected. Live from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful downtown San Bernardino, California. Thanks for tuning into the Water Zone Show. Good afternoon. I'm Rob Starr. Mr. Mike Barron is off today. Uh, it's uh, actual week, so we're going to turn it over to our wonderful hosts from the Micro Irrigation Group of Toro, Ms. Inge Bisconer and Mr. Paul McFadden. Hi, guys. How you doing? We're doing great, Rob. How, uh, pleased to be here uh, today on a, another beautiful day in California. Um, Paul, how are you doing? Great, thanks. Thanks. Thanks uh, Thanks for your kind introduction, Rob. Oh, you guys are separated. You're not together. That's we true. are, um, uh-huh. but you can never tell that. Uh, <laughs> no. It will, it will be seamless. Uh, we're on the same page. We know what each other is doing, and uh, we've got a couple of great guests tonight. Um, thank you to Paul for more or less setting uh, this evening up, but uh, our guests come from a unique perspective. They're both farmers, and they are both uh, instrumental in uh, uh, irrigation district um, management and, and uh, influences and uh, direction for those water districts. So from farming and water district perspectives today, we have Michael Franz for, from uh, Franz Nursery, and in the second half of the show, we have Peter Nelson from the uh, wonderful Citrus and from the Coachella Valley Water District. So and, and pretty exciting. And it's special. We have no more drought officially. Oh, man, is it nice to uh, not have a dry, brown drought map of California these days. Absolutely. I just want to see they get water in central California. (laughs) Yeah, there's still a couple of counties for sure that are stressed, and we've depleted our groundwater, which is pretty much our savings account, so we need to refill that. But at least there's stuff falling from the sky, right? Yep. Anyway, it's your show, so go for it. All right. Well, thank you. Um, well, uh, Paul, if you don't mind, I'll uh, head off with Michael and uh, introduce Michael, who should be on the line. Welcome, Michael. Good evening. Thanks for having me on your show. It's a pleasure. Uh, I enjoyed hearing you speak at the uh, CAIA conference earlier in the year, and uh, really excited to have you on the show tonight. Just for our listening audience, I'd like to give them a little bit of background about you before we dive in and uh, have a conversation. So, um, Michael is president of Franz Wholesale Nursery. It's a position he took over from his father back in 1998. It's a 600-acre family operation that employs over 200 people, and it's a premier supplier of containerized trees and shrubs for the landscape and retail nursery industry in the western U.S. And in keeping with his family's commitment to excellent stewardship, Franz Wholesale Nursery recycles all green waste generated on the farm reuses over 500,000 gallons of water per day, and all energy needs are met by solar generation. That, those, are, those are pretty tall orders and quite the achievement, um, Michael. Um, you, you've also been active on local, statewide, and national boards, ranging from the nursery industry to public power. Uh, in 2009, you were dele- um, elected to the board of directors for the Turlock Irrigation District, which is a publicly owned utility that provides water and power to 662 square miles in the Central Valley. That's a pretty big footprint. <laughs> also serves as a Nursery Growers Association board uh, on the Farm Bureau board, the American Hort board, and the San Joaquin Valley Ag Advisory Board for 
SUSCON, which is Sustainable Conservation, a very cool organization. And in your capacity as a TID board member, you've been highly involved with stakeholder negotiations related to the State Water Resources Control Board's update of the Bay Delta Water Quality Control Plan and the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission relicensing. And thankfully, um, in addition to all those duties, you found time to be happily married to Christy Crow and that you have your three uh, children, Landon, Braden, and Haley. So um, welcome, Michael, and tell us a little bit about how how you continued the farming legacy that your um, family started and how you become so involved in the irrigation and water industry. Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks again, Angie, for having me on your show. So as you related in, in introducing me, my family has been in the nursery business where we raise containerized trees and shrubs primarily for the ornamental market, supplying uh, chain stores and independent garden centers and landscapers up and down the state of California, and a little bit up north in the Pacific Northwest as well, uh, for a long time. My parents started the company in the mid-'70s, and I've always loved the business. It's a commercial enterprise, and yet we're still farmers. Uh, we're absolutely connected to the soil, and just like the farmers are, in that we sow seeds and we start little baby trees from cuttings, and we're out there grafting them and doing all the fun things that farmers get to do, and yet we're, in a sense, a commercial enterprise that's dealing with chain stores and and sort of the um, daily commerce that comes with a, a thriving farm. And so it's really been a, a, a blessing for our family, and it's been a lot of fun to uh, watch the business grow. Um, Michael, this is Paul. Um, I just uh, was curious, as, you, uh, as you're looking at uh, different aspects of, of your recycling program, your green waste, your reuse of water, which in doing kind of the uh, quick calculation, but you recycle and reuse enough water to to uh, basically uh, almost uh, supply the the fresh water uh, or the equivalent fresh water for two families for for an entire year. Now that's uh, that's quite a quite a significant amount, hundreds of thousands of gallons. So uh, your solar energy and and so forth, you know, in your uh, in your I guess my first the first part of the question is, why is that important and how did it come about? Yeah, you know, since you mentioned sustainable conservation, I'll, I'll steal their tagline as a great answer to your question in a succinct way, and that is that my family has always believed in environmental solutions that make economic sense for the business. And so when you look at our green waste, for example, uh, rather than pay to have it haul off, uh, we're able to compost it here on farm, and for about the price of what it would cost to buy that material back as compost, we can do it ourselves. And so we're able to be good stewards with our waste stream, and yet really it's, we're not making any money, we're not saving any money, but we're also not, it's not costing us anything as a business to be better stewards than putting it in a landfill. And with the water, it's very similar. Um, our water, our tail water, the water that falls on outside of plants, maybe from sprinklers, that hit a open area or an aisle or water that comes out the bottom of the weep hole of the container that's draining through our micro-irrigation system, all that wastewater um, has trace amounts of chemicals in it, meaning nitrogen, meaning fertilizer that we use to apply to help our plants grow. And if we can reuse that water, we not only save the underlying water itself and become more efficient and better stewards of the water resource, but we're also able to lower our fertilizer bill by running that water back through in a continuous loop. And so whether it's water, whether it's this, the, the uh, solar system that we have in place that is a aggregated system, that we have a single solar farm that covers over 20 meters that are spaced across the farm, whether it's our office or our shop or our propagation fans and the greenhouse, all that's pooled under one system, again, in a way that is economically viable uh, to help our farm be more sustainable. Yeah, uh, recycling is kind of where it's at. Yeah, Paul, go ahead. I was just going to say, you, you told a, 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 a very uh, enlightening story about growing up on the family nursery and and uh, fishing and the uh, local uh, river that runs alongside the nursery, and, the, and I was wondering if you would mind retelling that story. Absolutely. Yeah, I love to tell it, uh, Paul, because it's really unique. My brother and I were just blessed to have the good fortune to have my father, really by luck, 
bought a piece of property in the early 80s, 1981, that borders the Tuolumne River. And so our farm, as it's grown over the years, has kind of lengthened out, but it still borders about a mile and a half of the Tuolumne River, which starts up in the headwaters of the Tuolumne are where the Hetch Hetchy water system uh, begins and feeds the city and county of San Francisco and a lot of the greater Bay Area. Uh, that water flows down the hills. It's pristine water. Uh, what's not diverted by the city of county, city and county of San Francisco system uh, flows into Lake Don Pedro and ultimately flows past our farm. And growing up, we had a lot of a lot of good times, Paul, mucking around for clams and and trying to catch carp and bass and salmon when they flow by in the fall. And so we've always enjoyed the river and really, really feel blessed to to be able to farm alongside it. Yeah, there's nothing better than a free-flowing river. I was fortunate to have similar experiences in my youth up on the north fork of the Cahuilla, east of Visalia. Yeah, it's it's really wonderful. And I was just going to say that recycling, yes, it's just the new norm, really. Uh, you know, Toro just launched a recycling program for uh, drip tape recycling, and it's doing really great. You know, in the past, growers would load up all their leftover plastics and either take it to the dump or you know, do something with it. And now it's an economic stream. You know, they can actually get paid for getting it picked up. And, you know, that's barbecue money for the, for you know, the farmhands at the end of the year after harvest, right? <laughs> it's fantastic. So, um, uh, so Michael, um, just uh, switching gears a little bit here, talking about the Turlock Water District. So one of your duties is is serving on that board and representing agriculture and of course your own family farm so what sort of things are is the turlock water district doing to help farmers with with stewardship and and i'll just um mention that we know that um the south san joaquin irrigation district have recently toured them and have relationships there and we know that they're doing a lot of great things to help their growers you know, better conserve water, be better irrigators, uh, you know, subsidizing drip irrigation equipment and things like that. What is the Turlock uh, Water District doing? Yeah, great question. So uh, you're right. In addition to my duties at the family farm, I have for the last eight years uh, served as a director for the Turlock Irrigation District, which is a, a fantastic place to be. TID is really part of the fabric of our community. Uh, it's because of the commitment our our fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers made that they pledged their farms in order to build the original infrastructure, the canals and the dams that bring the water, store the water from that flows down in the spring, down the hills, and are able to deliver it across 150,000 acres of farmland that TID has really enabled to flourish because of the reliable water supply that we have for this community. Um, we have taken our role as stewards of the water very seriously, and as we've entered into the, these multiple-year droughts, that we've endured over the last four years, uh, we've done a lot of things, mostly inside of the channel or immediately beside it, not as much maybe on-farm as some have done in Southern California. But, for example, we've invested about $5 million in a pilot project bringing the total channel control system that you'd see in Australia. I believe IID down in the um, Imperial area has some of that as well. OID, which is Oakdale Irrigation District nearby, they have been putting quite a bit in as well. It's a way really to reduce the spills that come out of the lower end of a of a pass-through canal system. Our system is 135 years old. It's a gravity flow system, and it's really inherently inefficient because of the, of the way the water pours out at the end. And so by bringing total channel control in, um, we're, we are automating the, the side gates and measuring them much, much tighter uh, by bringing in uh, a, a solar-powered, computerized side gates that are enabling us to better meter the water out to the farmer. Uh, we've converted to volumetric pricing, uh, which is, again, a way to incentivize farmers to be as water-wise as they can by having ascending pricing tiers. So the first water is the cheapest water, and the, and the more the, the end of your season, if you're still using you know, maybe a lot or too much, the pricing becomes substantially higher. So those are things that we've done in the district to try to raise awareness and ultimately save water. And are, are those gates, those automatic gates, um, helpful if the farmers want to convert from, say, um, flood irrigation or gravity irrigation to 
pressurized irrigation like sprinklers or drip that uh, require, um, you know, a little, little more flexible delivery schedule from the district? Does it help in that respect, too? So what it's really helping, uh, Ingi, is it allows us to deliver a real steady quantity of water in a quantity and amount as determined by the farmer. So, yes, to answer your question, if a farmer wants to install micro-irrigation systems in their, in their uh, farm, and they need a much smaller head than they, a much smaller quantity of water than they would otherwise have needed when they flood irrigated. Uh, typically, our district has a real standard uh, irrigation uh, size, and so you all get the same flow rate each time. But with these side gates, they are much more intelligent. You can dial in the exact quant- flow rate of water, whether it's gallons or CFS that you want. And then even if the canal elevation of water in the channel goes up or down throughout the day, the side gates will lower or raise themselves in order to deliver the exact same quantity of water to be able, for example, to, to um, charge a box where a farmer would have a pump pumping water out and into, onto his micro-irrigation system. So it's not well, quite that, as direct as the pressurized system you may have seen more, in more South San Joaquin, but it's a way right? of enabling farmers to build their own similar systems. Yeah, more, more food for, with the water. That, uh, that's great. Well, uh, there's been a lot of precipitation. I bet Paul wants to talk about that. Yeah, we, we, we've, uh, we've, we've had uh, uh, so much uh, precipitation that uh, for uh, the spillway at uh, Lake Orville has uh, had some issues. And uh, just curious from your perspective, Michael, how is the recent rain and snowfall uh, how the events still happening in Northern California, as, you, as you're well aware of. How is that uh, really affecting the way farmers are, are looking at uh, irrigation and water, uh, both uh, uh, right now and uh, on through the summer and then for the years to come? Yeah. So uh, in Turlock here, we have what we call a conjunctive use water management plan, which means that we, we try to bank our groundwater to be drawn out of and used during multi-year drought periods. And then during times of plenty, like this year, where we have so much water coming down the river that we can't even store it all. In fact, we're releasing tremendous volumes of water out to sea each day. And so during these type of years, we try, historically, have always encouraged our farmers, those who are able, uh, to flood irrigate. It seems wasteful and it seems old-fashioned, but the reality is the best way to recharge groundwater statewide is to apply liberal amounts of water through farmland and using broad expanses of farmable land to to percolate the water down, down past the drip zone, and ultimately into the groundwater um, uh, uh, levels. And so the farmers here have done that for a lot of years. They, we have the majority of the district is, is graded and smooth and, and, and uh, sloped in such a way that they can still flood irrigate their fields. And we really, really try to promote that um, in order to, recharge the groundwater basin so it's the water's there and it's banked away basically like an underground reservoir uh, for the next drought event. So we weren't able to do too much of that last year because the drought, we weren't sure if it was over. Things were better, but they weren't great. Um, and the farmers were just looking back at 2014 where they, where they had a 60% reduction of their normal allotment. They were still very reluctant to do too much recharge. But this year, uh, hopefully it's going to be the, the mother of all recharge years. We're really hoping to be able to put back what's been taken out and hope to see those groundwater levels rebound. Well, hopefully with the Bureau's recent announcement, or actually it was today or yesterday, of 100% allocations for south of the Delta, will that help you with the groundwater situation as well? You know, our system in the Turlock Irrigation District, the the Board of Directors is able to to allocate the water, so we're not quite as as constrained as those who are uh, uh, the export contractors, like those who are on the... uh, the Central Valley Project, the CVP. Uh, so that particular proclamation doesn't uh, pertain to us too much, but certainly we are really grateful and happy to see the, our farmers and our neighbors south of us uh, get a water allocation, even, albeit a little late, but we're certainly happy to see them finally get the water that they deserve. Uh, Michael, I just um, was curious, you know, you mentioned the, the kind of the separation from the CVP. How does the recent... Uh regulatory action by the State Water Board uh, affect you guys? You know, uh, that's a really good question, Paul. It's a, it's the, the, the recent Water Board proposal is they are updating their Bay Delta plan. Uh, 
which is something they do every few years. It's actually been closer to 20 since they've done a comprehensive review. Uh, they did a, a minor one in 1996-97. But they are proposing to leave a substantial portion of water that currently is being put into use for our communities. They're proposing to leave that water in the river for the benefit of fish and wildlife and let it ultimately flow out to sea. And so our region is really gravely concerned about their approach. Uh, while we agree with them that the salmon populations are in decline and need our support and need better stewardship to be able to shepherd them back into numbers that we'd all feel better about seeing, but we believe that the way the state board is approaching this particular river and set of rivers, meaning the, the San Joaquin tributaries, Stanislaus, Merced, and Tuolumne rivers, we believe that the locals here have a much better plan. Um, the Tuolumne River, for example, where, where I live next to and the, the TID is the operator of, has been called the most studied river in the state of California. Uh, in the last five years, we, along with our partners, Modesto Irrigation District and the city and county of San Francisco, have invested $25 million into some cutting-edge science to help us determine what the river needs in order to restore the salmon fishery. And we think we have better solutions than what's being proposed by the state. Uh, the state wants to basically just open up the valve and let water flow out to sea. And there are times during the biological cycle of the fish that additional water is needed. But the majority of what the farm or the fish actually need is to have non-native predator fish that are eating up a lot most of the outbound salmon fry. We need to get suppress those non-native fish. Uh, we need to. Uh, restore the river in some places that's been hurt and, and uh, impacted by, by gold mining and dredging in the mid to late 1800s. We need some r river restoration, and we need to be putting more woody debris and trees along the river to help shade it and, and cool the water down as it moves its way out to sea. So we think we have solutions, uh, and we're working with the state of California to hope to see a collaborative approach be implemented instead of just a send more water downstream and hope it does good things. Sounds well, like you kind of want a little more local control, kind of the way the stigma, the groundwater management um, areas have been composed, that the, the locals are um, really tasked with finding, uh, you know, a sustainable solution for their own groundwater basins, and then the state or the feds would, you know, come in if they were, if they failed in doing so. And that's that kind of what you would advocate, that your local area gets to, try to solve this problem first before the state mandates something? Ingi, that's a great comparison. And so when the lawmakers, when the legislature passed the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, they recognized that there is a tremendous amount of diversity in individual groundwater basins up and down the state of California, and they recognize that no one knows the basin better than the locals, the people closest to the resource. And so it's exactly the same. Here along the Tuolumne River, we have people like myself, frankly, who live here, uh, no one's more connected to the river and the soil than the people around me, my neighbors, and, our, and the folks who, who use the river for our livelihood and, and for our recreation. And so just like Sigma, we hope the state recognizes that people closest to the resource often have the best solutions. Well, that's great. And you definitely need to get rid of those um um, the striped bass during those critical times. I learned that on a Delta tour last summer. That, um, well, good luck with that. I, I hope that you're able to prevail and uh, get some local control there and get those solutions in, in place. Paul, and you? Well, it's going to be interesting. Our next guest, uh, Peter Nelson, is involved with a, a similar project on the Colorado River, and I'll be very curious to see what his uh, thoughts are on that uh, as you deal with, uh, with the things that are on uh, on the Tuolumne River, Tuolumne River, Michael. Any uh, in the couple of minutes we have left, any uh, close, closing thoughts that you have on on the either your family uh, nursery farming operation or the the river or any water issues uh, that you would like our listeners to know more about? Well, I think uh, Angie said it best when she mentioned how grateful she is that the drought is over, and we too are delighted to have the snowpack and glad the rain is over. But from a personal standpoint. I hope that both the farming community and those who, who are in municipalities that rely on water, whether it's groundwater or surface water, I hope that they don't lose, tr track, lose sight of the fact that, you know, the state is really crazy. It's a land of extremes. Who could have imagined that we'd have the driest four years 
in 1,200-year history, and now we're having subsequently followed by the wettest year on record. So California is a land of extremes, and our water is a resource that we must use wisely, and we really have to be prepared to store it, whether above ground, on stream, off stream, underground, whatever it takes. We need to be able to have the ability to hold it back wisely to have it be available during periods of drought because even though this year's not one, we know there's an, a one coming just around the corner. And so whether it's because of regulatory action, um, whether it's because of drought, we know that we, our water is scarce and we can't afford to waste it, whether it's because of a poor, poor farming practice or because you don't have your timer set right and you're putting the water on the sidewalk and, instead of the grass. But we really have to be wise stewards. We can't afford to let water run out to sea just because we hope that will help the fishery. We need to use sound science. We need to be conservative on farm uh, and continue investing in recycling and, and to be, continue to do more to capture flood flows. There's a lot of flood flows that this year have gone out to sea, and I hope the next wet year we're even better prepared than this year to capture those flows and be putting them on farm for recharge in, in an even more scalable way. And so it's good. It's great to have the drought over, but I think we should already be talking about the next one and thinking yeah, about it and being lot, wise. Still a lot of work to do, and, and extremes are the new norm. Well, thank you, Michael, for the work that you do and for visiting with us uh, this evening. I think we uh, have to hand it back to Rob for a commercial break, and then we'll move on to our next guest. But thank you very much for calling in this yes, evening. Yes, thank you. Thank you bet. Thank you. Take care. Welcome back to the uh, Water Zone Show, and uh, this week is Agriculture Week. Oh, he's on now. We all hear you. <laughs> and we're here at uh, KCEA uh, radio station, and uh, our guest has just called in, so now we can turn it back over to Miss Ingie Biscona and Paul McFarland. Go ahead. McFadden, sorry. Thanks, Rob. We've uh, we had uh, had uh, a little uh, brief uh, problem there getting uh, Peter on the line. Peter, are you there? I am. Thank you. I'm sorry about uh, sorry about that. Uh, last oh, no minute, uh, a little hiccup, but we had a, we had a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. We're going Call back. I'm sitting here trying to read the script, and I'm in there talking to the engineer. We're trying to go back and forth and tell somebody he hasn't called in yet, and this and that. Anyway, you're here. We're glad. And I and when you're done, I do have a question about uh, the Salton Sea, since I know you were involved sure, in that. Sure. So I'll turn it over to uh, Ingi and Paul. Go ahead, Paul. Well, Peter's yeah. got a. a, a broad array of experience. We could take any one of these components and make an entire hour show out of I'm sure it would be fascinating. But, uh, Peter, if you don't mind, I'd like to read your uh, a quick introduction for our listening sure. audience. Uh, Peter has been uh, a member of the Coachella Valley Water District uh, Board of Directors since 2000, six of those years as the president of that group and four as vice president of the board. He serves on the Salton Sea Authority uh, from 2000 to just recently in 2014. He's currently uh, is a is on the California Farm Water Coalition Board. Also served on the California Desert Grape Administrative Committee, which is a federal marketing order, uh, for four years from 2008 to 2012, and for six years for the Coachella Valley Resource Conservation District. In, a, in addition, Peter served on the Lower Colorado River Multi-Species Habitat Conservation Farm Advisory Group. Uh, Peter is a graduate of uh, Cal State University Fresno with a degree in agricultural business. He participates in groups ranging from the Association of California Water Agencies to the Colorado River Water Users Association. He's represented the district on a wide variety of state, federal, and local elected, locally elected and, and water industry officials. Peter is a grower of citrus, grapes, and dates in the Coachella Valley and has been involved with growing activities in the Palo Verde and Imperial Valleys and Borrego Springs. Originally from the Bakersfield, Fresno area, he's now a 26-year-plus resident of the Coachella Valley. Peter and his wife, Darlene, live in La Quinta and have three sons and two grandchildren. So welcome to that? the Water Zone, Peter. Thank you. Um, tell us a little bit more about your background and how you ended up in farming and and irrigation coming from Fresno and ending up for the last quarter plus century in, in the Coachella Valley. Well, you covered a lot of it in the bio, and uh, thanks a lot, uh, Paul and Ingi, for uh, having me on the show. Uh, I, I guess I'll, I'll start with after 
after a three-week period of uh, consistent Thule fog and a drive from Wasco to Arvin on a daily basis, uh, looking at an accident a day at least, uh, I was uh, exploring an opportunity in the Coachella Valley, and my wife and I came down. It was 75 degrees, the sun was shining, and we were sold. Uh, we we kind of jumped at the offer too, too quickly because... Uh, uh, that summer, it reached 128 degrees on July 4th, and uh, uh, we, we weren't quite sure what we had gotten ourselves into. But uh, many years later, we find ourselves here, and uh, you know, with the heat that we have here, obviously water is one of our most important issues. And uh, I've enjoyed uh, managing for some different companies, um, uh, both uh, all citrus, uh, uh, dates, kind of an unusual uh product, uh, grapes, uh, in all the valleys that you mentioned. And, uh, so it's been a, a good ride for us. Excellent. Well, well, Peter, I really enjoyed your, um, participation as a uh, panelist at the CII conference a few years ago. Um, I think that was 2013. I'm on the board of directors for CII and plan those conferences. And we th- I just want to thank you for helping us make that year uh, a success as, as we've had in recent years. Um, maybe we can move on to um, talking a little bit about the, you know, the recent precipitation, which we're all so thankful and happy about. Has that really affected your Southern California area as much as it has the Northern California area? Is it, is it really a, a help? Because, you know, Coachella is really partially uh, um, fed by the Colorado River Basin. So um, does our Sierra snowpack and rainfall help as much as um, as we hope it does? So uh, that's a great question. Uh, thanks. So I, you know, I live in an urban setting in the Coachella Valley. Uh, we have farming in our valley as well. We have about 60,000 acres uh, of uh, farming ground. Um, and I uh, currently am working for Wonderful Citrus, and, and kind of today I'm speaking on behalf of our water district board and, and really myself as a as a, a long-time grower in the valley. Um, and we have, uh, we're in the Palm Springs area. We're about two hours east of L.A. Uh, we're home of uh, famous concerts like Coachella, which is happening this weekend, Stagecoach, uh, Desert Trip. Um, so, uh, but we do have agriculture out here. Uh, our average rainfall is three inches, and I think we've got five inches this year. But our motto out here is really that we're always in a drought. Even though the governor might declare emergency uh, drought uh, conditions and and then rescind them like we're all thankful for now, uh, but we're really cognizant of our precarious uh, drought position here. But with that, we we are affected by drought because we have imported water supplies from both the State Water Project and the Colorado River. Uh, you mentioned Oroville Dam uh, earlier on the show, and we're, we're actually a contractor there, so it's been fascinating to watch uh, that whole um, um, that whole issue uh, develop there. And uh, it's uh, it's kind of tragic uh, in, in in some respects, and it's kind of uh, predictable in the fact that we have such an, an aging water system here in California. Uh, you know, it used to be that we could count on 70% of our state water project uh, contracted supplies, and now the state's kind of leaning towards 60%. And even in our planning documents uh, for our own valley's uh, water supplies, we're, we're even thinking less than that. So um, the drought is affecting these supplies. Uh, that's why we're supporting uh, the California water fix, uh, which would, uh, you know, build the tunnels that would move the water around the delta, uh, especially during these high-flow periods. Uh, Michael mentioned that the San Joaquin is just so full, and uh, uh, that's providing for some pumping abilities now. But when the Sacramento is full, uh, it, uh, the, the alternative movement around the delta would be very helpful for us. You know, there are 25 million people in Southern California uh, as well as us who depend on these water supplies. And if there's an earthquake that may cause saltwater intrusion uh, or rising sea levels uh, that many predict with climate change, that it, it would be important to have an alternative uh, conveyance system. And so 
that's why we're very supportive of that uh, fix in there. So the rain, the rain is very important to us for these uh, alternative water supplies. Yeah, and even even though California is technically out of the drought, doesn't mean that the Colorado Basin is. The, the Colorado River is still heavily impacted, is it not? Right, and there's just a terrific story that you could compare the Colorado River uh, system to the state water project system uh, with the California system. Um, when you think in terms of the Colorado River, there's um, any you can debate it, but between 13 and 15 million acre-feet of water per year, uh, it's high, highly variable, so that's an average. Uh, but that system has 60 million acre-feet of storage. So between Lake Mead and Lake Powell, there's about 50 million acre-feet of storage. And then the upper basin, which includes uh, four states, uh, Wyoming, Utah, uh, New Mexico, and Colorado, uh, they have a, a large amount of story, uh, storage up in the upper basin as well. And with high water years, high snowpack years, which this year just happens to be a good year in the Colorado, not great like California. I think the numbers are uh, 175% snowpack as of today in the Sierras, and it's about 128% of average in the Colorado basin. But with storage... Uh, it, it makes all the world a difference. In fact, we're in the Colorado Basin. We're only 50% full right now, and so we can we can absorb a, a, a huge rainfall and a huge snowpack. But you look at the the reservoirs today. Go on the on the uh, Department of Water Resources website, and you can look at all the levels. Well, it's almost full. Look, Orville was spilling over. Uh, San Luis uh, is full. A lot of the reservoirs are full, and we still have the snowpack to go. And that's why we think that that storage, new storage such as Sites Reservoir and Temperance Flats are very important for California to move forward on. Listen, the, the, the voters of, the, of California voted on Proposition 1 to spend $11 billion on, on projects, and storage is some uh, 2 or $3 billion of that. And it's important to move forward on those projects so that we can capture the, the, this, uh, this rainfall and snow melt when there's an opportunity. So if you compare the two systems, the Colorado and California, you can see that there's much more opportunity to uh, store water and take advantage of high rainfall periods on the Colorado. Thank you. That was very interesting. It, I, I hadn't considered it, but uh, the the kind of the analogy between the two, and, and uh, uh, as you were going through your your, your points, it, it's very true. It's very similar in, in so many ways. Uh, it, just uh, this week, there was a front page article on uh, Lake Mead and the Colorado River in general in the uh, local uh, Southern California San Diego uh, uh, Union Tribune. And drawing a lot of attention to to the water levels, specifically in Lake Mead, and uh, it was uh, it was quite uh, quite interesting. And I think uh, the points that you made about the snowpack uh, in the High Sierras versus the Rockies, we don't always we don't always look at 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 the entire Western U.S. as a, holistically. We we tend to just focus on on uh, on on California, but I agree with you. It's uh, it's uh, it's it, uh, especially in Southern California, where we get a majority of our water from the Colorado River. We have to we have to maybe expand our vision a little bit to to encompass encompass uh, not just the that, Colorado River, that, but that's so true, Paul. You know, uh, when when folks think of integrated water systems, uh, they might think uh, you know Northern California and Southern California. And, and to make the point, it's much bigger than that. It's Northern California, and what happens in the Delta affects Southern California. And what happens on the Colorado affects uh, the Coachella Valley, the Imperial Valley, and Southern California. You know, the Metropolitan Water District uh, has uh, the Colorado River Aqueduct uh, that, uh, you know, comes through the desert off of Colorado. So these systems are uh, immensely... Um, uh, conjoined, and you have the delta on the one side in that system, 
And then on the other side, we have the Salton Sea, uh, which there are issues that need to be addressed uh, there as well. And, and so this integration uh, really is meaningful when you think in terms of, um, of developing these uh, these storages and, and so forth. In fact, yesterday, which what the data came out today, uh, yesterday the eight station index in Northern California uh, went over the top to show that this is the wettest year in Northern California in all of recorded history. That's something to celebrate, uh, and but also to think about the, the immense uh, possibilities of what we what we could have done with that water uh, that 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 has come down and will come down, uh, we won't be able to capture it all, but uh, and you or use it for the environment because that's an important aspect too. But in the future, if we can look at what what we're seeing today and know that this will uh, this will occur in in future, we'll have dry periods and we'll have wet periods. That if we could be all set up to take advantage of these then we could reduce our reliance on groundwater if we have these surface waters uh, uh, stored and available to us. Listen, the guys who get shut off from surface supplies uh, go to the groundwater, and it's getting overdrafted. And and so it's very important that we get that surface water supply in. Great, completely. To, uh, to ask you a little bit more about your background, and, and obviously in looking at all the things that you're involved in, and uh, you know, in addition to your farming and being a grandpa, uh, <laughs> you know, you're you're a busy man. How do you? What are some of the things that uh, that you're doing in the industry outside of farming uh, that is most important to you, or where you've seen the most success? Or buying toys for his grandkids. <laughs> yeah, the grandkids <laughs> are the most important. <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt about that. No doubt about that. I think, I think. Um, when you think in terms of, you know, what we leave behind to our grandkids and, and as legacies, um, I think no matter what level we're on, if we, can, if we can, in the water business, think of trying to make things better for future generations. You know, the Coachella Valley Water District started out in 1910. So, uh, I'm sorry, 1918. We're, we're about to celebrate 100 years. And it was, it was shortly after the Coachella Valley Water District was formed. They were pumping the groundwater for agriculture in the early 1900s. And they went out and they, they as a little district, 60,000, 70,000 acres, they went out and they, they put them, themselves at the table at the Colorado uh, River negotiations. And they, they were uh, contributory to the 1922 Colorado River Compact. That was signed in uh, Bishop in, in New Mexico at Bishop's Lodge, and they 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 inserted themselves in that because they would knew that they would need back in the early 1900s an imported water supply. So when that eventually Hoover Dam was built and came in the 1950s, the groundwater of the Coachella Valley uh, started to come up tremendously because there was less demand on the groundwater basin. The imported supplies were replacing that use, and there was actually um, recharge going on from those activities. So, in the by seeing that uh, in the 60s, uh, the, the groundwater levels started going back down, and so the district said, "Hey, we need more imported water supplies." So they went and and became state water project contractors to the state water project. So, um, through an exchange agreement with the Metropolitan Water District. State water project and uh, our state water project water goes to Metropolitan. We take some of their Colorado River supplies. We were uh, enabled to to recharge the other side of our valley. That made a tremendous impact on the valley. So we didn't have a lot of state water project uh, table A entitlement. So we ended up negotiating for more, trading for more, uh, doing some deals. Uh, cooperatively with other agencies and private entities, and as a district, um, then we we got enough water to really work at becoming having a sustainable aquifer, a sustainable groundwater basin. So that all happened before me. So so when I got on the board in 2000, we felt like there was enough urban um, development in our valley 
that there would be a look to agricultural supplies uh, to satisfy the needs for the new urban development. So what we did is, as an agency, we went out, and, and at the time, the Imperial Irrigation District in the Imperial Valley and the San Diego County Water Authority were working on the largest ag-to-urban uh, water transfer because San Diego wanted an uh, independent water supply from the Metropolitan Water District. So they were working on that. Well, we got involved in those organizations, in, that, in those negotiations, and we negotiated for additional water supplies for our needs. Well, we're receiving that water today, and with that water, we have developed uh, another uh, groundwater recharge facility, and we're just embarking on a third groundwater aquifer uh, recharge facility uh, in the mid in our mid valley uh, that will recharge use that negotiated for water through the QSA uh, to shore up our groundwater basin, which we're excited to say we're seeing uh, recovery in, uh, even though we're we're uh, uh, pumping additional supplies. So we're putting water into the ground. We're getting there's a lot of golf in our area. It's a tourism area as well. Golf, in many ways, is agriculture. They're, they're growing grass, and they're, they're getting an income off that. But what we're doing with them is we are uh, replacing their groundwater pumping with Colorado River supplies in order to, to protect our aquifer. So I think we're in a mindset of protecting the aquifer uh, with reasonable cost. And uh, I calculated it out uh, uh, before the show, and... Uh, per gallon, uh, the cost of that is less than a penny per gallon. Uh, when you look at it as a, most people pay their water bills uh, in an urban setting at uh, uh, per 100 cubic uh, feet, uh, 750 gallons. So it works out to be anywhere from 15 to uh, 30 cents uh, per unit on their bill. And it ranges in different areas of benefit in our valley from $66 an acre foot which that's kind of farmer speak, up to uh, about $135 an acre foot in different areas. So uh, I think those are reasonable costs for uh, groundwater producers to pay to have sustainable aquifers. So I, I guess, uh, you know, my, my goals and ambitions in, in the water world would be to, uh, you know, have a sustainable system. And uh, conservation is key to that. And, and we're working with uh, our farmers. Uh, there's some opportunities there. Uh, we're working with golf and the urban setting as well. So it's fun to be and exciting, actually, to be part of an agency that, that has so many different things going on, ag, urban, water reclamation. We're recycling water to use uh, on golf courses and uh, probably eventually we'll go into the ag uh, uh, realm in, uh, one of these days, uh, just not right now, but uh, in the future, that's certainly a potential. So uh, I'm excited to be, you know, part of this planning for the future. Congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. That is a huge achievement. And, you know, everybody's got different um, metrics of, of what's affordable, but you always have to compare it with, well, what would it cost to not have any water? And that's huge because it doesn't transport well. It's very heavy, and it may not be locally available. So uh, the, the costs that you cited sound sound very reasonable, especially in comparison with not having any around. Well, um, a, good, a good friend Peter, of we mine have about once said, five minutes uh, you never know and, the value and, of water. Uh, Rob has to that. sign off and move to another show. And I wanted to make sure that we did get to talk about the Salton Sea a little bit. I know, Rob, you've got a burning question, and I'm actually heading out close to there this weekend. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what's going on there, or maybe that's part of this um, Lower Colorado River Multi-Species Habitat Conservation Farm Advisory Group that uh, you serve on. Um, so tell us a little bit about that and maybe what's going on with the Salton Sea. Uh, we had uh, Michael Cohen from Pacific Institute speak at um, the last panel at CII and talk about how we need to do some work to to uh, restore the Salton Sea, and the money's been allocated, and we just need to... Um, get it shovel ready and get it started so maybe you can make some comments on that too well there, there was rumor just let me just interject real quick there was uh, uh, a question and and somebody had sent it into us that there was an organization called the water train have you heard that peter 
who? It's called the Water Train. Uh, I have not heard that. It's a company that bought 132 rail cars, uh, uh, tanker things, and they said they were making a proposal oh, yeah. to, to that where they said they could fill it up. I go back. I've dealt with CVWD for years back when uh, Robbins was the GM, and I deal with sure. Dave Kohler and Mike Stewart uh, for the res- residential commercial side for smart controllers and things of that. But we had heard right. that, that this wa- this water train company was making a proposal saying they could fill, they could re- they could bring water and fill it up cheaper than what anybody was going to do. I don't know if that's a real issue or a real thing or that was just Yeah, smoking. well, you know, there are a lot of ideas out there. I mean, there are folks who say they're going to put a tube up the up the Columbia River and uh, fill bladders and float it down uh, the coast. Uh, you probably heard of those. Um, uh, there's this water train, and uh, now that you jogged my memory, I, I have heard of it. Uh, but when you when you really start looking at crunching the numbers on cost of water and uh, and you know potential uh, you know air quality impacts and uh, you know all those things get looked at in these environmental reviews and 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 there, there's huge cost to that and you think of the Salton Sea is a is a 350 square mile um, uh, lake and. It has, uh, you know, it was filled up with uh, probably has about a three million acre feet of water in it at full capacity, and and so there's a lot of water in there. It'd be a lot of trains, and uh, you probably have to have uh, trains. Uh, uh, you'd have to have a lot of trains. <laughs> so uh, you, you probably what, have to what, have what we're struggling to comprehend is what restoration means and what it looks like, and is it protection of the current. Uh, Shoreline is it uh, is it bifurcating the lake into a brine lake and a freshwater lake, uh, and and oh there's there's uh, the state has proposed some species conservation habitat which are which is a good idea and needs to get started. The state really needs to get uh, uh, get motivated to get moving on the projects that that would uh, secure that the quantification settlement moves forward without. IID objections, uh, that's one of their issues. Uh, The Salton Sea needs to, you know, mitigate some of the missive dust areas. Uh, The state, through the legislation uh, uh, from the quantification settlement agreement period, had agreed to uh, take care of that. There's a brand-new Salton Sea plan. It's a $400 million plan, but yet the state's only committed $80 million to it, so they need to find a way to... To satisfy their 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 obligations there, I mean, part of the reason why the that uh, those agreements and those transfers that Ag to Urban took place was because uh, the state made some commitments uh, to all of the agencies out here. So so we're looking for the state of California to follow through. And uh, so far in the last uh, year or so, they've been uh, doing a lot of work, and we appreciate that. Uh, all of us in the area, and we look forward to uh, more things happening. Great. Well, that's going to kind of bring us up to the end of the show here. Any, any final 30-second quickies? No, no, just thank you, Peter, for um, engaging with us. And, uh, yeah, the, the, I, I'd say the message is we've got to cooperate, as Pat Mulroy always says, uh, from the down of the, the whole region has to cooperate. And we have to save when, when the times are plenty, you know, and... Uh, Tuck that water away, whether it's in the ground or surface, because uh, 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 variability is in our future. Paul, anything to say? Thank you, Peter. Appreciate uh, your time and all the things that you're doing on behalf of uh, your community and and, uh, and for the, the water users in Southern California. Great. Thank you all for having me. I appreciate it.